0: Hi and welcome to the next episode of Transperfect Lifestyle Talks. I'm Mark Wade, I'm the practice leader at Transperfect. I'm joined today by a veteran of the industry, Shay Wilkins, CEO of Trial. Shay, welcome to Transperfect Lifestyle Talks.
1: Thank you, Mark. Good to see you again. Appreciate the invite.
0: Not at all. Let's let's jump right into it. Let's jump right into it. I mean, because Trial is is I think at the key at, at, at the forefront of AI. So you have a lot of experience in AI. Could we talk around what AI can do? for studies today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, AI has an impact in a number of different places as as it comes to clinical research. The first of which is, you know, when we think about the acceleration of, you know, the creation of new drug candidates out there. So with AI and protein folding and some of these, uh, you know, gene therapy technologies, for example, what we're seeing is a lot of new drug candidates relative to how quickly they came on the scene before. So um, I think the AI on the drug discovery portion has really helped already. Uh, You have companies that maybe 10 years ago might've had one drug in the pipeline and kind of bet the farm on that. Now they have as many as 10 because they've been able to synthesize these particular uh, therapeutics uh, digitally. And then now they're just trying to choose which one to to focus on or what group to focus on. So we're seeing an acceleration there using AI.
0: And the, the thing is to, to, to note is that all of us been in, in, in trials for a long time. Trials haven't evolved. Well, they haven't really changed that much. We're still operating the same way as we were a few years ago. Is AI going to impact on how we actually address
1: the study? I believe it is. I, I think it's uh, really ripe uh, or it's, it's a perfect place for AI to come in. in part to the types of tasks that are associated with study startup uh, in order to get a trial running, uh, in order to recruit patients, in order to administer e-clinical solutions. We really have an opportunity here as an industry to focus on AI uh, in order to speed this up. Now, there are certain parts of a clinical trial. It makes sense to go at the pace they're going, right? This is a first time in participants or or in human subjects to be able to test a therapy, so that's going to take as long as it takes. It's a good old-fashioned uh, science experiment in that regard. But during study startup, where we have to outsource, configure, we have to test, uh, we have to deploy, uh, and I'm talking uh, in particular uh, us as an industry using e-clinical technology, there's some opportunities for AI to to step in. One place I think that it could really step in is starting from the protocol and closing that distance from when we either have a, a prototypes or a synopsis of the protocol or a draft of the protocol until you can see a prototype of e-clinical technology. I think that AI has a big role to play there.
0: Okay. So, so make sure I'm, I'm hearing this correctly though. So as, as, it, as it shrinks this protocol timeline, well, how is it, how in real world, real world, how is it doing that? Is it all about reusing assets? What what is it all about that actually achieves that shrinkage?
1: Yeah, well, it finally helps us meet the study where it's at, or where the the study team where it's at. So, I think that if I look at uh, when we get a uh, uh, you know a protocol synopsis, it's very early in the process. You know, you're going to have to, and then you have to go through outsourcing and then you have to go through choosing a a vendor as a, as a sponsor or CRO. Then you have to configure these solutions, go through UAT. It might be six months to nine months before you ever see, see a prototype of what you were hoping to see when you were developing the synopsis, right. Or, or the draft protocol. So what, I think we can do as an industry is let's let's really meet um, you know meet this process where they're at. A lot of these protocols are still PDFs. They're still Word documents. Um, there are some places where um, I've seen them. You have a protocol tool that can model it in you know a, a very standardized way. Those are great too. Um, you know, adoption can be hit or miss depending on the company. So I think that we want to take as an industry take the protocol. You know, in whatever form it comes, and then apply AI technologies to ingest it, make sense of it, digitize it, standardize the data around it, and then ultimately configure that first prototype. Moving that process from the very back of the workflow
0: to the front. Right. So, so I suppose in many ways, when we get hold of this, this PDF document. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're creating all the documents that spin off from this, okay? because there's, there's so many things, right? So we have everything from like, you know, our e-consent, our EDC, our PIL, everything, right, is spun off from this. So it's, it's just like if for me now, in the, in the, in the, we live in the translation world. A lot of that is us reusing those assets. And AI can very readily reuse those assets and capture music. Is that effectively what you're saying as well, that we use these assets?
1: Yes, I think so. I think in in a normal process that that um, you know a, a study would have going on right now. I was speaking specifically about eClinical, but the reality is is the protocol drives almost every single workflow that happens within a clinical study. So from that protocol, a lot of documents are produced. One would be a, a requirements and specifications for eCOA, for example. Another one would be a consent document. Uh, Another one might be, uh, you know, a recruiting plan or a statistical analysis plan. All of those things are derived from the protocol. And each one of those documents really represents a workflow that a team or a person or a, a group of sites or whomever is involved will have to execute on. So I think by producing that first step, the document, and let's take translation, for example, if we have a consent document and we can automatically understand what needs to be in there from the protocol as an industry. I think that at that point, it is pretty appealing to take a first stab at the translation. These large language models are getting really good at that. Now, is that the end of the end?
0: No. No. I don't think so. I was going to say, you you mentioned e-consent there. and like. I know enough to be dangerous about e-consent, mm-hmm. but e-consent to me, it should be a document, but it's not, it's actually now a tool. And the problem is that each site has have their own different e-consent familiarity. So, and also each vendor has their own tool. So what happens is that you, sites, unfortunately, have to use different tools and a, that, what I'm saying is that overcomplexes the, 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 the situation and it does delay things. And that's just one, as you mentioned, that's just one aspect of a workflow that we have to deal with that we have to speak to so i'm I'm hoping that ai can actually speak to these things and 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 create a standardization
1: It can. I I think uh, it definitely helps. E-consent as a tool, uh, you know, if we stay with that example, has a lot of promise, right? The digitization of that, the delivery, uh, you know, either at home or in clinic, you know, the ability to test and understand their recall or whether or not they have understood exactly what what the participant is consenting to. I think all that's really made better by the digitization of it. However, to your point, if I am a study team and I read a protocol, I have to go and then produce an consent, informed consent document based on what's in that protocol. Yeah, if yeah. it's a synopsis, you may have a 11-page a synopsis, but you may have a 15-page consent, right? Yep. So those are people doing that work based on their experience, based on literature that's been published, based on best practices. That's a good place for AI to step in to give a best first result, right? Right to be confirmed by experts. So if I back up AI a little bit, Mark, and I think about, okay, as a business owner, what do I want it to do? I would like it to maybe completely automate a process from soup to nuts. I want it to turn a junior employee possibly into a senior employee, or I'd like to, uh, you know, multiply my most experienced employees by 10, right? The reality is the first two things there, um, because AI in general hallucinates, let's take the most popular model, which would be chat GPT, for example, Mm -hmm. by their own admission, 20% is just making it up. 80% is pretty good at the AI aspect of it, but that 20% is hallucinating. And that's a technical term that we've all heard by now. If we know that and we trust complete automation to AI, meaning I give it an input and I implicitly trust the output, I think what you're gonna have there is possible safety issues in a clinical trial, but definitely rework, right? Because you don't have anyone to verify it. You introduce a lot of risk into a study for various uh, disciplines of it. If you wanna turn a junior employee into a senior employee, it will help, but that junior employee lacks the experience to say, you know what? Something just doesn't feel right with this output that AI gave me, right? So you could still have some error rate there that's undesirable, or make a decision that you know hasn't been vetted properly. The sweet spot to me is really having those senior employees multiplying them by ten.
0: And I think that you hit the nail on the head right there. So let me unpack that slightly for I may. Yeah. So in terms of the authoring, the generative AI can actually author. And it's, it's not the end result, it's just a, a good starting point, a good starting yeah. point. But if you have the right resources checking that content and like making sure there's no hallucinations in there, you actually get a good document at the end of the day. So not that authors become editors full-time, but I'm suggesting that there's less heavy lifting at the front end if we can get that generated kind of by AI.
1: I like the way you put that, you know, so turning an author into an editor, right? And someone senior to focus. The benefit of that is, number one, you didn't use the time to author it from scratch uh, to begin with, right? Whatever document that is. We're, We're talking about consent now, but it could be something else um however you get to see it and iterate it more times in the timeline that you have allotted for that task so in theory you should get better with a highly iterative highly transparent cycle only enabled by ai and i think that's really where we're going to see quite uh, you know a lot of the benefits surface when we're talking about uh, increasing efficiency and accelerating clinical trials you know so if we apply as an industry ai to these types of tasks then I think it makes a lot of sense. You really have to characterize those problems, right? So what problems are, are best suited for AI? Some of them really don't belong at the moment, uh, having AI address them, but some of them do. So if you think of, yeah, I guess everything ends up in a Venn diagram, but if you think of a Venn diagram of three circles where you have people, you have process, and you have technology, right? Right. And let's call the technology AI for argument's sake. If right. the people are just using AI and you don't have an existing process that really needs to uh, to be accelerated, then what you have is you have a bunch of solutions looking for problems. You're throwing stuff against the wall, uh, hoping one of them sticks. If you have people and process and no technology uh, in this in this example, AI, then really that's where your manual process exists. It's slow, it's cumbersome, it requires manual checks, you can introduce error eligibility, uh, and diaries, for example, things like that. So that, that is an optimal as well. And if you just have technology and process, you really don't have anything to, to steer. And you could, as I said, have some, uh, rework for sure, some safety issues in general. So it's in between the middle of those things and where those, um, people, uh, people process and technology intersect that really, I think AI is the best application for.
0: Translation memories, the concept of reusing assets that you've already translated. And then we had machine translation, which was effectively machines translating automated, uh, but it required significant heavy lifting at the, the, the back end to, okay, you call it hallucinations, wonderful word, to make sure that the, the machine translation was somewhat accurate. AI, I think, has just made that even more clever, but you're still going to need that, that SME, the that expert at the end, tidying up. Those hallucinations and making sure that everything is on track still and the, the, the translation has is, is done what it's supposed to do. So, yeah, I think, it, it, to me, that's iterative. We, we've been doing this for quite some time. Yeah. I think yep. we're, getting, we're getting better and better and slicker and slicker at it. In terms of, in terms of if, if, if we do this, right, um, then for me, anyway, the natural progression, the natural progression is, we are looking at, at, at using assets. The protocol drives the documents. We use AI to generate the documents. We, at the far end, the SMEs, we collate that and make sure that it's correct. Bolted onto every protocol, you see a number of measures, a number of instruments. How we're going to capture an EDC, to be honest, is it, quite defined. The, the, the ECOA work, the, the, the clinical outcome assessment work that we bolt on at the end of a protocol. It doesn't really lend itself so much to AI. Let me explain why I say that. AI, by definition, is incredibly data hungry. The more data you have, the better it is. Instruments are not heavy data. Mm -hmm. Even larger instruments, maybe 36 items, is 36 items. Do you know what I mean? So it's not that massive amount of data. So will AI do you think speak to instruments either in the creation or even in the translation? And that's actually for your four-table, do you think AI will speak to those things meaningfully? Mm-hmm.
1: I think both. Um, I think the models, you know, some of the neural nets and some of the you know large language models have enough context, uh, you know, having digitized essentially the internet up to a certain point to have a base understanding of what questions you're trying to ask. As they get better, the statistical sig- signals generated by these questionnaires can be understood, understood too by AI. So I think mostly on the creation side, uh, Mark, but on the translation side, there's a, there's a role to play as well. As you mentioned, TransPerfect, for example, has been doing a lot of this machine learning stuff or, or at least uh, machine translations for some time to optimize their internal processes and get better results for their customers. But I think all it's doing, and you alluded to this, is giving you a better first result. It's taking it a little bit further, right? And the more data that you put into this in terms of translations... The better it gets, and I think as a first result for the translations of those questionnaires, we're going to get a little bit further. For example, now these large language models, you know, understand the difference between Chilean Spanish and Argentinian Spanish, and different words and contexts, grammar. It just has more context than it did before, and I think the interesting thing about discussions like this and podcasts like this is I don't know how well they're going to age, because as soon as you and I, as soon as you and I get off the phone uh, or, or, or or the meeting here, I, I we know that it's already moved forward. That's how quickly this is this is happening. It feels a lot like, you know, sort of internet, mid-90s when things started to come up. It's a real sea change in technology because the leaps in process and the best first results that we're getting, uh, we're starting to trust the output more and more. But more importantly, we're training that AI. So everything that we do on a translation for an instrument, by and large, you can kind of bake that into a library, right? That's a best practice. It's something that's worked. Uh, you, You might not need a lot more optimization there if you've done it once. But from creating new instruments, I think it would be interesting to understand what AI could come up with in order to elicit another signal for a particular disease state. Figuring in things like, uh, Motor skill issues, have difficulty seeing, talking. Um, you know, that they, it might come up with something truly unique. This is interesting.
0: This is like, first of all, I I I agree because twenty years ago we were we we were capturing data on on paper, right? Yep. Uh, and we moved towards electronic, very. <laughs> basic stuff like palm pilots Mm -hmm. and stuff like that we're we're really at at, at the cutting edge um and that's moved on i think the pandemic changed i think it changed everything i mean it changed everything in the real world but in our world it changed everything Mm -hmm. because suddenly the hockey stick effect where we dct everyone kind of almost embraced dct as the only way we can actually capture patient data now and everyone accepted the concept of like video calls, the fact yep. that you and I are not sitting in the same office—that's true. We're, we're, we've, we've accepted this this, this interaction. Um, we've accepted now that, that that DCT is it's here to stay, and it's 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 picking up. And I I I believe that, like I said, everything's cyclical. Before we went from from paper to basic stuff, it started getting momentum, and now it's exponential. But the question is going to be. What evidence will the sponsors want to see, and the regulators want to see, vis-à-vis uh, DCT? I mean, you know what will they want to see? Because okay, we have proof of concept, but I'm convinced the regulators are going to see, want to see, real evidence now. Yeah, show me that. Show me that, that using the, using this virtual, you know, uh, trial process it's just as just as good a scientific experiment as a randomized clinical trial.
1: Yeah. And, and, and in reality, probably, uh, you know, it's it's like if you have a prize fighter and, uh, you know, they're defending their belt, for example, and we'll say that that's traditional clinical trials. And then you have. You have an upstart. Um, You know, person that's trying coming to try to take that title. You don't want to leave that to a decision, right? Oftentimes, the champion gets the benefit of the doubt. So, while I would like my answer to be that the evidence that they need is just parity with the existing, and I think by and large we're we're pretty close to, you know, understanding that you know DCT really does provide parity for traditional trials. Um, It's probably going to take a little bit more for real and there when i say widespread adoption we've already seen widespread adoption as you alluded to for covid right we didn't yeah. have a choice we had to do everything to, to be, yeah. you see some retrenchment on that post covid or post lockdown sort of scenario where mostly everything's falling more in a hybrid but a lot of what dct is really about you know is as i've talked to people as early as 2006 about this. And, you know, you see it coming to the forefront, uh, you know, both in, in every single conference you go to and the speeches and, social media and things like that. It's really more of a hybrid approach and, um, where you, you want to meet both the patient and the sponsor. You want to grease the wheels in terms of, of, of getting compliant data, accurate data out of the study. For example, You could have a study where one site doesn't want to do as many DCT activities. It's a high concentration of their participant. Um, You know, they they live nearby, right? There's not a lot of distance in between there. And they say, you know, this isn't necessary. We can have them come in and and do these visits. And so they choose to go that way. And then another site says, you know what, we're out in Iowa. The nearest patient we have is 45 miles away, but, but some of them are as far as you know, 250 miles away, then, uh, and that you, you want to make sure that you can recruit and retain patients in a study and make sure they're compliant with, uh, with what the protocol uh, has asked for. So in that regard, you could have two sites doing something differently, but you could also have one patient doing something differently, depending on the visit. You know what, I'm going to be at my grandmother's house this weekend, so I can't come into the clinic. Can I do a televisit for this visit? Sure. Can I do have a home care visit instead of coming to the clinic? You know, I've injured my leg and I can't come in and I don't have transportation. You know, there's a myriad of reasons. I'm a single mother who, you know, works a couple of jobs trying to, to participate in this study. There's a lot of reasons why it might not be convenient. So you hear the term patient centricity. You hear the term, um, you know, the the voice of the participant coming to the forefront. DCT really is one of the largest promises to really help with that, to address uh, the fact that, that the participant's voice may not be heard. Let's meet them where they're at, have them conduct and participate in trials that are most convenient to them, reduce the burden for both sites and subjects. And I think that's what helps DCT. Where does AI play into all that? I think AI is very good at making decisions off of new data as long as it has enough context. So you can have a dynamically decentralized trial both within one patient's experience in the study or an entire group of sites or any mix in there between. So it's a way of, you know, meeting us as participants uh, where we're at and making sure that you make it as easy for us to capture high quality data in the time and manner that it was supposed to be captured. So, you know, DCT isn't going anywhere because of a number of incentives that point it that way, the centralization, some of the quality you can get out of it, the cost, frankly, yeah. uh, is is another key driver. So, we want to make sure that we're applying AI, for example, in ways that can help um, you know move DCT forward where applicable. Um, if it's not a full decentralized trial or it's not a uh, a full traditional trial, if you will, where you're traveling to the site for everything. Um, most likely, what's going to happen for some time is more of a hybrid approach. I, I, I would venture to guess.
0: And I think you're right. I do. I think that's that is that's what's happening. We see it happening now, and I think that's going to happen for some time. Shay, I want to say thank you for taking the time today. That was just brilliant. Um, today, I was joined by Shay Wilkins, who is the uh, CEO of TriLink. Um, I'm Mark Wade for TransPerfect Life Sciences. Thank you so much. Join us next time on TransPerfect Life Science Talks. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Mark.